0: Remember the first time you got your license and you got into an accident, and you are like, I don't know how to do this. Remember, like, you rear in somebody lightly and whoever you hit, they're like, they're like, I need your license and registration. And you're like, where would that be? (laughs) And it's not enough that you hit them, you still gotta like have them walk you through it. Like, can you help me with this? You could tell those kids anything, by the way. You could be like, I get your car now. You know that, right? (laughs) Well, I like that you hit me, so I get your car. That's how it works. And they'd be like, yeah, I guess so.
1: Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off-topic. Today's episode was recorded live on stage at Cornelia Street Cafe in New York late last month. It features eight different performers telling travel stories at the launch party for my new book, Souvenir. Now, some of these performers have been on my podcast before, including comedian Ari Shafir. He appears towards the end of this episode when he gives us a brand new 10-minute stand-up routine about interacting with gibbons during a cave hike in Thailand. Elsewhere, we hear playwright Alex Dawson offering up a poignant meditation about his dead mother's boots. Oral history curator Jean-Marie Theobalds talks about a magic ring she purchased in Brazil. Poet Tommy Pico reads a hilarious and occasionally explicit breakup poem called Junk. Writer Anne Holiday reflects on the accidental souvenir she finds in her own home, including a piece of domestic ephemera she's come to call Mike. Filmmaker Peggy Vale talks about the time she was asked to name a newborn baby in Kenya and all the pressure that task entailed. I actually end the night by reading an excerpt from my new book. In this case, a story about a souvenir I took from the site of a plane crash in Colorado. Please note that every so often, the audio comes in a tad hot and distorted. This was my first attempt to record a live event for the podcast. Now, the first reader of the night was TV host Ernest White II, who you might remember appeared on Deviate Episode Two last fall. Ernest arrived to the event fresh off a plane from Namibia, and he kicks off the night by telling a story about an intriguing woman he met there. A souvenir vendor who harbored great ambitions for her own life. Ernest, your first man, come on up. Ernest White the second, ladies and gentlemen, fresh from Namibia, here to tell us a story about souvenirs.
2: All right, thank you, sir. Gotcha. You Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Um, pounding heartbeat. You may be able to hear it. Um, I'm Ernest White the second. Fly Brother is a television show that uh, I'm doing. It's a uh, hybrid reality travel show about friendship and connection. And uh, yeah, so I will tell you about how I got this little souvenir here on my wrist. Um, Beauty is a bangle and a bangle is beauty. That's a quote from Shantaram. Say what you will about that book, but it's interminably quotable. Um, Beauty. So in Namibia, I met a young lady named Beauty. Uh, She was 19 years old, spoke English, Spanish, Portuguese, a little bit of Polish. She was selling trinkets uh, in a marketplace in the town of Opuo, near the Angolan border. And uh, Beauty was dressed in uh, kind of slinky nightclub dress, uh, which looked a bit out of place in the marketplace, but um, I don't know. It just... It suited her personality uh, in a sense. So we made eye contact, we started talking um, and Beauty is of the Himba tribe. Does anyone know anything about the Himba tribe or has ever heard of the Himba tribe? Nope? Oh, there's bright lights in my face. Uh, So what do you know uh, most remarkably about the Himba tribe? Well, I think mostly what I know
3: about them is from the movie Babies. Mm. Uh, you know, it
2: seemed like she anyway was living really close to the land with her family. Well, indeed. Typically, Himba women are bare-breasted, yeah. and they are that way in the village as well as in town. And they paint their skins with uh, this ochre covering that uh, protects from the sun and also is a mark of beauty. And this young lady told me that she was from the Himba tribe. And I asked, well, okay... You're wearing Western clothing. She said, well, I'm in school here and I want to be a doctor. And the reason is because there are not that many Himba doctors who go into the villages and take care of the people there. And so I wanted to be able to have a way for my community to communicate with the outside world and typically with healthcare professionals. So the only way to do that is to become a doctor. Earlier that morning, I had gone to the Himba village nearby. I was a guest of uh, the Namibian tourism board and they took us around because we were filming an episode of my television show. And I'm in the village and it's all women because the men were still out in the countryside uh, herding livestock and hunting. And the women were lined up um, and it was all men on the crew and the tour guide was a man and so we're looking at these women they're showing us the decorations on their bodies and uh... you know as an african-american as a gay man um, it was quite disconcerting to see a man kind of showing us how their hair is compacted and in the designs and just doing the touching and, and all the little things and i'm like okay So I'm Western and I'm coming here with all my, you know, my own baggage. So I'm going to try to receive whatever's happening right now with an open mind and open heart and just let things go the way they're going. Anyway, one of the women, after the initial kind of uh, human safari aspect happened, um, she took us to her hut and she showed us how she pounded cornmeal in order to make the porridge that the men were going to eat. Um, It was a quite laborious process, she pounded it with a rock. And I could see like the triceps tensing in her arm as she was pounding this the grains on, you know, rock against rock, um, sweating, and just really going through this workout to show us how they do something traditionally in a way that wasn't traditional because she was doing it just for us to see. Then she went into the hut and um, she had to show She was going to show us how she kept her private parts clean, specifically because Himba women don't bathe the way, with with water. Um, That was disconcerting to me, obviously, because, you know, we don't ask Western white women how they keep their vaginas fresh. Um, (laughs) So all this is happening. And uh, later, after we finally finished with the, the tour, uh, the women danced and sang for us. After about 10 minutes of dancing and singing, I could see that they actually started dancing and singing for themselves because the energy changed. It wasn't so much of a presentation as it was. They were challenging each other with different dance steps. They were getting into the the, 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 the rhythm and the music of it all. Later, uh, they were selling trinkets and uh, designs and jewelry and things of that nature and I went up to the specific woman who had shown us all these aspects of her life because I wanted to buy something from her and I bought this bangle. Gave her the money, uh, you know, Tried. To, I talked through the guide, um, asked him how to say thank you and all these other things. And what I forgot to ask was how to say how what her name was. I forgot to ask her her name. Well, later I was thinking, you know, how am I going to tell this woman's story on my television show, which is very much centered on friendships that I already have with people in typically urban environments, I'm a city boy. And I realized after talking later with Beauty, the future doctor, that the way I could tell this other woman's story is talking about, you know, how she fits into modern life now in Namibia, as a businesswoman, as a chef, as an artisan, as a mother, a homemaker, a lover—all of the things that make that modern women do. Um, and I believe that if I had to give her a name, I would give her the name Beauty. Thank you very much.
1: Thanks, Ernest. I actually, Namibia shows up in the book, it shows up in Souvenir. Um, and I was actually talking to Ari, who's going to speak later, uh, from my podcast about how I've traveled the world as a travel writer for almost 20 years now, but until I started researching this book I didn't really talk to that many souvenir vendors. Souvenir vendors were just sort of a little bit of a of a nuisance on the edge of my other travel experiences. But it was actually in Namibia where I sat down and interviewed souvenir vendors, and it was really interesting. And so a few of them from the the Tamara tribe um, have a big role in one of the early chapters of my book. But I also talked to souvenir vendors in Swakopmund, and it was interesting how um, I think what characterizes us as travelers sometimes is the lack of time. And there was an extent in Swakopmund, Namibia a couple years ago, no, that was last year, The the vendors didn't really see me the first time I met them because they figured I would just be another person who was gone the next day. And then um, when I did show up the next day to interview them, I think they were sort of surprised that I actually came back because I think so many people are dishonest about um, when they speak to souvenir vendors, they actually lie to souvenir vendors about coming back and buying souvenirs. Um, And so it was really interesting. I, I must have talked about Donald Trump with those vendors for an hour or two. Um, and the Domino tribesmen actually invited me uh, to their village, which is six hours away from the coast. So I guess that's my challenge uh, for you anywhere in the world. If you are deeply annoyed by souvenir vendors, maybe ask them a few questions, hang around, uh, build their trust. They're actually really interesting and they speak great en- English. Um, so uh, Ernest, thank you for that and thank you for coming jet-lagged to my event. That was awesome. Speaking of jet lag, our next speaker uh, actually met Ernest for the first time at the Margaret Mead Film Festival for a film called Gringo Trails, which was made by our next speaker, Peggy Vale. I I got to know her during the filming. She said, uh, you interviewed Pico Iyer, do you have his contact information? And I said, well, yeah, but don't you want to interview me? And so eventually she did. Um, And I'm in, in Gringo Trails too, So she is jet lagged from a different part of the Antipodean world, from Australia. And uh, she's a professor uh, and anthropologist at NYU. And Peggy Vale, come on up and tell us a story about souvenirs.
4: So um, in celebration of your book, Souvenir, I thought I would tell a souvenir, a story, share a memory. So it was 1989, and my friend Rachel and I were traveling and hired a guide to take us through Samburu land, which Samburu, for those that don't know, are kind of like the cousins of the Maasai. And we, we walked and walked and walked for days and days and days, walking through herds of zebras, which are my favorite animals, I was kind of in heaven. Um, and we finally arrived um, through this dry, arid landscape in um, north central Kenya. We arrived in this small, tiny village of mud and thatched huts set in this deep green valley. Um, and we were welcomed by the community and we sat around this fire and told stories and drank a lot of very strong moonshine and um, under a blanket of beautiful stars so we retired that night quite happily and satiated um, into our a straw mat that was inside one of the women's homes but that very night um, our host gave birth right across the fire from us in that small hut so a little baby boy was born and the the tribesmen thought um, people thought we had brought luck so they asked us to name the child This was like an incredible honor, but it was also, it freaked us out (laughs) because we were like, um, this is a lot of pressure to come up with a great name. But we decided, you know, we didn't want to give him a Western name, an English name. So we said, let's give him like an African name. So we pulled out a map. Um, This is our first time in Africa, actually, in the continent of Africa. Pulled out a map and looked looked on the map and saw this really beautiful river that was kind of like winding and, you know, ran fast. And it was really long river between Uganda, what was then Zaire. So we presented the name um, to the elders, the elder men, and they um, suddenly like looked really disappointed. And like our hearts sank and we're like, oh wow, I don't know what we did wrong, Um, oh no. But then then they said, they, they nevertheless prayed over it and they accepted the name. And um, we, you know, had a goat killing ceremony and they, you know, slashed the goat's throat, poured out the blood into the gourds and we drank from it and, um, and everything was, you know, everything was uh, settled. <laughs> the name was Joseph. Um But then we asked our guide, we're like, why didn't they like the name? I don't, I, you know, we're kind of worried about that. And he said, well, um, I think they really wanted an American name. Or like maybe Billy or Tommy or like, you know, something like that. And we're like, oh, okay. So it suddenly occurred to us, this would be like somebody coming to the States, like pulling out a map and and looking at the map and naming a child like Disneyland or like, you know, Rio Grande or New Jersey. Um, so we learned our lesson, <laughs> and I'd love to meet some Leaky someday, if he still has that name, and um, who knows, maybe he did end up growing into his namesake, and runs fast, and, and winding wildlife. So, thank you.
1: I, I like to think that on that basis alone, there's like three people named Skippy in, in Africa. <laughs> based on people who got to name African kids. Is Melvin here, Peggy? Yeah, i right Okay. Do you want to tell a story, Melvin? I would love
2: to. I'm super jet-lagged. <laughs> okay. okay.
1: And maybe it's bad luck to have three jet-lagged people tell stories <laughs> to begin the night. Um, but good to see you here, Melvin. Um, our third speaker is not jet-lagged. Um, it's Anne Holiday. I first knew her because of a book called No Touch Monkey and Other Travel Lessons Left Unlearned. Um, I've been throwing travel writers brunches since 2002, and I think Anne has been to all of them. Uh, she is not just a travel writer, but also a comic artist and a theater performer, and uh, a guidebook writer. I actually blurbed one of her guidebooks, and the other, two people, the other three people, I think, was Matt Gross of the New York Times, one of the Housewives of New Jersey, is that right? And Stephen Colbert, who you dated when you were like 17 or something. so. <laughs> So it's probably the only book that I will blurb in tandem with Stephen Colbert. But Ann, why don't you come up and tell us a story about souvenirs? Yeah. Was
3: that
1: proprietary?
3: <laughs> well, it's better you say it than me, you know. Um, very jet lagged. I just took the subway down from East Harlem. <laughs> so I thought I lost Mike last month. It, it was scary. He was there, he was there, he was there, and then all of a sudden he wasn't. And I was like, where's Mike? He's not in his usual. See, I have a rule put in place after a decade spent amassing souvenirs from the markets of Africa, India, and Southeast Asia, only to have them gather dust in small apartments in Chicago in New York all souvenirs must be useful. If a souvenir cannot serve a practical purpose, it stays in the stall to await another sucker. Or, no judgments, perhaps the next sucker to come along will be a ca- cultural anthropologist with a minor in dance, specifically legong. Someone who might actually wear that long fanged wooden mask rather than stash it under a variety of beds in apartments where wall space is at a premium. Where one day you discover that carpet beetles have been busy devouring its waist-length horsehair tresses which were always slightly disturbing to begin with. And out it goes. Or maybe I could take it to the Salvation Army? Though, really, who in their right mind would want that scary hairless thing, especially after one of its eye sockets was fractured in the annual attempt to squeeze the Christmas decorations in atop it before putting the mattress back in place? (laughs) Who would want it? Well, me, maybe. I, I like thrift stores. I like treating myself to unexpected things for the price of a coffee and a bagel. The local Salvation Army can't best your average grocery in Queens for that hey, I'm in a foreign country feel, but it's still pretty good, and other people's abandoned souvenirs exert an undeniable attraction. For me, anyway. That tin tray rimmed with faded 1960s postcard images of scenic Taiwan, the heavy iron thingy for producing cakes shaped like fish, still pristine in its original box from Tokyo hands, a Shinjuku legend where I myself have shopped, though it would never have occurred to me to purchase one of these. I was too consumed by the heaps of children's stationery emblazoned with mangled English slogans, which I bought by the ton and still have. I can't shake the notion that it's too good to use the legacy and curse of a frugal Midwestern upbringing. A tiny gold plastic Buddha surrounded by plastic offerings in a palm-sized plastic dome. I like imagining his journey from an unidentified Thai temple to a charity shop abutting a camo net draped gun emporium in Stratford, New Hampshire. 25 cents, the elderly volunteer at the register kept asking me what it was for. Well. It's a reminder of all the times I passed through Thailand, but it also prevents me from having accidents on those rare occasions when I drive a car. As long as Buddha's on the dash, I'm safe. My husband doesn't like it, won't let me glue it down. Mm, That's probably why I haven't seen it in a while either. Probably got stuck under the seat the last time I missed an exit. I have faith that I'll find it again. I just need to work up the courage to reach up under there and grope blindly amid the petrified pirate's booty, and other assorted souvenirs from the days my children, now 20 and 17, rode strapped into filthy car seats in the back. Not to get all Velveteen Rabbit on you, but some souvenirs, like Mike, take years to assert themselves as such. Mike is both time capsule and time traveler, a close spiritual cousin to another great lost souvenir, My mother's dampening bottle, an obsolete object to be sure. Does anyone dampen anymore? (laughs) Basically what it was, was a cork stopper to which a tiny aluminum sprinkler head had been attached. I have no idea if this is the kind of item that you could buy in a hardware store once upon a time, I've inquired to no avail. My mother installed hers in a seven up bottle dating to the days when soda cost a dime and bottles were made out of glass. You fill this setup with water and put the little cork back in, and then when your clothes come out of the dryer all wrinkly, you shake it over them to redampen them, roll it up in a towel, the clothes, roll them up in the towel, and then an hour later you unroll them and iron them. My mother used to do this all the time, and God knows how this item became the most desirable item Artifact of mes temps perdu when ironing was a normal activity and my mother was married to my father. I think I have an attraction to homemade solutions. I'll always regret the ladle I didn't buy in an out-of-the-way Tanzanian market where tourists weren't a thing but serving implements made out of empty margarine cans were. Also, the dampening bottle was more aesthetically pleasing than the basin-sized plastic bathtub my father requisitioned to collect dead leaves in after my tubsy doll stopped working. I had no particular attachment to tubsy, whom my mother considered vulgar, but her bathtub lingered in the garage long after my dad moved on, a reminder of leaves left uncollected. And then we too moved. The dampening bottle moved with us not once but twice. And then years later, back in Indiana for a visit, I reached under the sink and it was gone. Hey mom, where's the where's the dampening bottle? The dampening bottle? Yeah, that seven up bottle with the thing in it. Oh don't tell me you're gonna iron something. No, I just never mind. So the dampening bottle's gone along with 90% of the stuff dragged home from my travels, but I've still got Mike. Yeah, I found him. Here he is. (laughs) He's a clothespin. He's got his name right there on him, if you can see well. Mike. Believe me, there's nothing I can't anthropomorphize, but that's not why I'm so attached to Mike. The story of Mike is when my daughter was little, she enjoyed playing school, an activity I encouraged by buying her a chalkboard and a bell and all sorts of other obsolete teachery things more suited to Little House on the Prairie than her own experience. It all went into a bin labeled school, because that's what Montessori teachers do, I hear, separate shit into bins, although unlike me, they probably clean them on the regular, weeding out the broken, the no longer needed, the things that don't belong. Freed from parental oversight, India, that's my daughter, added to the bin as she saw fit. And eventually, her teacher supplies grew to include some of the wooden clothespins I had purchased because they reminded me of my best friend Karen, who lives in London now, and who uses them to secure the tops of snack bags and cereal bags. This is how I practice self-care, sandbagging treasured connections with daily oft-subconscious reminders. Other people do jewelry or tattoos I do clothes pins. India took a Sharpie and labeled each purloined pin with the name of one of her half dozen or so invisible students. Most of them were familiar to me, her friends Abby and Chloe, her little brother Milo, his friend Tayo. The only one I didn't know was Mike. I want to be clear that I was not overly focused on this activity while it was actually going on. I was much more likely thanking my lucky stars that she was quiet and occupied, leaving me free to work on my zine for a few minutes or vacuum up the black silt carpet beetles leave behind when they're chowing down on the shit you've stored under the bed. Actually, I only discovered the carpet beetles when we were leaving Brooklyn for East Harlem two years ago. I'd been packing for months, getting increasingly unsentimental about everything I'd come to possess in my half-century on this planet. The carpet beetles were remarkably helpful there, much more so than the life-changing magic of tidying up. The truth is, most of us don't need souvenirs of our travels, truly. Buy them if you must, but dole them out to friends upon your return. Let them become someone else's problem. You know what makes a good souvenir of Uganda or Peru? The words Uganda and Peru. Every time they come up in conversation on the news or Facebook or an actual book book, you get to remember that you were there. But Mike? Mike is special, a reliquary. Mike pins me to a time that rarely comes up in conversation. Its other primary participant recalls virtually nothing about it. It's the difference between, you were in Rwanda, and, oh, you're a mom. Do you have a mom blog? Uh, It seemed so dull (laughs) as it was unfurling, but in retrospect, it was filled with strange meaning and insights. And I'm really glad Instagram didn't exist back then. I worry that Instagram is causing the mics of this world to go the way of the dampening bottle. And plus I can use him to close a bread bag. That's how I nearly lost him. His utility. My daughter's off at college now, but someone in my household, my husband, my son, possibly myself, saw him as a stranger would, mistook him for something merely useful, and anonymous, as anonymous as any folk craft banged out en mass for the tourist trade. He was discovered inside a bag of stale granola that nobody in the household likes. Maybe I should hang him on the wall. Thank you. <laughs>
1: And Anne. That, that reminded me a lot of the process of researching my book, and one of the challenges I had in writing the book, which is how you differentiate or how you define a souvenir, because there's so many objects that we come across in life that sort of help us define meaning and help us define ourselves and structure our, our memories. And in fact, even after I was done writing the book, I realized that even though I had scoured my house looking for souvenirs, I had forgot that like beer cups from baseball stadiums are also souvenirs. And that those are actually my cupboards, which I didn't look for when I was writing the book, and beer steins from the Queen's Oktoberfest. I forgot to look for that one as well. So that was fun to hear to, to hear Anne's story to see sort of how um, the, the the mementos of travel mixed in with uh, mementos of more um, domestic type situations. And so that was actually a challenge early in the book, is that. It would be a very long book if I tried to cover every category of object by which we frame our memories. Uh, So I kept them travel specific. Um, Our next reader, um, I actually met in Paris where he was a student of mine at the Paris American Academy in 2011. He's from the Viejas Indian Reservation in California. Um, He's a poet. I'm a nonfiction teacher. He wrote a terrific essay that year about the death of Amy Winehouse and being 27 years old. It's always fun uh, to Google his name because suddenly there he is being interviewed by the New Yorker, or there he is with another book being out. Our IRL was his first, Nature Poem is his second, and I just realized it Googling before I came here that that won the Whiting Award for Emerging Writers in the poetry category. His new book is called Junk, it's out in May. Um, Ladies and gentlemen, Tommy Pico.
5: Um, Hey, what's up, everybody? What's up? Um, I'm Tommy. I'm tall. Don't worry, I'll keep this... I like to say I'll keep it um, short and sweet because I'm tall and bitter. (laughs) Um... So I was really excited to hear that Rolf was coming out with a book and that it was called Souvenir, because my third book is called Junk. It's coming out in May. And it really, t- like, it's a poetic redemption of junk itself. It's a long poem. It's 72 pages. It's all in couplets. It's, you know, it's also kind of about, like, the not like the souvenirs that you, like, in a way that um, collecting these things is a way to, to make yourself at the center of your own universe, you know? And also just, like, the, like, <clears throat> that... And, and as a somatic experience, I did the life-changing magic of tidying up while I was writing this book, just getting rid of as much stuff as I could. And understanding that like, you know, it's not just like the, the physical souvenirs, but also like the memories of a relationship. It's a breakup poem in couplets, and so I'm just going to read a very short section of it. Um, I think you'll get it as uh, as I go along. So just for context, like a break a breakup has just happened, okay? Took us long fucking enough. Now I'm stupid and sugar free and realizing the only thing harder than writing is quitting candy. The only thing harder than quitting candy is walking all day and butter into bed in my body. But now that I'm fully inhabiting my cement, I'm finding the sacral joy of thinking into my rib cage. Convention says the book should be this long, but I'm only interested in writing as long as you want to read in one sitting. My aura is a strawberry shortcake dessert bar and the popular American corn snack Funyuns. My safe word is go to hell, <laughs> Katy Perry, pronounced catty. I'm writing a sitcom about butts and counting. It's called Number Two. The tagline is, <laughs> The tagline is turn the other cheek most times i'm a maniac other times losing an arm wrestling match sitting for longer and longer but paying less and less attention evolutionarily is a load easier to swallow with we we've known for centuries that time is a bossy bird curdler protrude from the green and calling it bud Sometimes you need to read something more than once. My joint is Mary Jane. The theme is Harmony of a Gradient. Let's hold hands and walk to the water taxi and matching tank tops, but we call the tank tops wedges. And the wedges are a chip witch, and our cherry cokes are a summer afternoon where we can't do nothing but lean into the grass at the carousel park in dumbo with the lap of the river and the dollhouse of lower Manhattan face fucking us
6: while we <laughs> neck, and later
5: face fuck. The days are burnt packets of fake sugar in faggot lands, and Sundays are the blurry worst. I'm taking notes in therapy, like be more in the moment. Everyone, they say, is trying to quiet the buzz, but here in the white waves, in the ring of your absence, I chafe to chatter. I leap into a scream of swans rubbing their swan cocks against the water's ass. Starving <laughs> junk in the sticky soda of my boy meat. Get on that rock-hard narrative, make it glisten. Fuck, oh fuck. My head a rabid Sega, frantic 16-bit divination. My hands huge Venn diagrams. The middle is where I miss you, filling me, honey. In the raw, it's odd to feel someone slip away, drilling their junk inside you. The sky is still and shy and surfing, newsflash. Predictions are insecure, but here are the Rainbow Road's possible paths. Come, Delta, choke my loneliness, daddy. More graphics, more resolution, more jagged shin cliffs, more anarchist sex dolls, more jewel teeth, more tears on the pizza, more hungry boys somewhere in the noise machine. The fat junk wags against my throat. Junk is charming in the hollows. A dude leans into me like cigarettes, half asleep. You know how some people are workaholics? Well, I'm an alcoholic. Today's jaw lick, lick, clack, <laughs> The syrup leaking from my moors, I mean pores. One more time, please. Can I please just ride one more time? I have the tightest, pinkest purse. Sorry, clutch. Let's play a game called sociopath or gay man. Let's bottomless brunch. Let's, let's, let's petal bagel with strawberry tofu, cream cheese, toasted snickerdoodle smoothie, fuchsia puree, adrenaline, whole bellinis. I'll eat it, daddy. Baby, I'm the opposite of a foodie. I'm like a junkie. Thanks.
1: awesome awesome so that's is and that's an excerpt from junk tommy yeah, yeah yeah okay so you can read the whole thing in may yeah is that tin house books that's
6: on tin house
1: yeah all right so they published your second book as well right they did yeah all right they love me it, well, clearly <laughs> we all love you tommy um yeah interesting and then that's a breakup poem correct yeah yeah um actually when when, when uh, when Ari, uh Actually, my podcast that comes out tomorrow is with Ari, who's going to read later. And we talked a little bit about like the ephemera, the souvenirs. Sometimes souvenirs become this metaphor from relationships gone by, and sometimes uh, they, they take object form, and sometimes they take memory form, and I, apparently they also take the form of tears on a pizza, which I love that image. Thank you, Tommy. Um, has anybody here been to the bar Tom and Jerry's? Yes. Just up yes. the street? Yes. This is where I met our, our, um, our next speaker, Jean-Marie. Um, I actually wanted to have a speaker of somebody that I just met in a public place in New York. She's actually, she's worked for MoMA as a oral history program curator. Uh, She's done, what we were talking about, she's traveled in Brazil and many other places, and uh, she works at Cherche Midi. She was a bartender. I have drank drinks off her bar, now she's the manager there, Jean-Marie Theobald. Can you come up and tell us a souvenir story, please?
7: Uh, my name is Jean-Marie, and I'm the bartender here. Well, now I'm the, uh, the manager, but I'm um, not a travel writer. But uh, Ralph uh, actually reminded me, well, reminded me, I always remembered, um, that there was a moment in time when I was a Fulbright scholar. And um, I got to pack my bags from New York and uh, move to Bahia, Brazil, and um, document uh, women potters in the rural hills of Bahia, Brazil, and the Hoconcovo, and all that. and I. Learned how to speak Portuguese and all that fun stuff. So consul- I just consolidate that. So I'm thinking like souvenirs. you like, get this email from out of the blue. And he's like, souvenirs, souvenirs. And I'm like, going through my house. I'm like, souvenirs, souvenirs, <laughs> souvenirs, <laughs> souvenirs. I, I didn't bring back any my, uh, souvenirs back from Brazil. Even the first time I went down. I mean, I, um, I brought food back. Like, I, um, like my mom's obsessed with food. Like my letters home to her back when you know you wrote letters and licked them and stuck them in the mail <laughs> mm-hmm. on uh, little thin pieces of paper for airplanes, Um, I smuggled in these little pulpas of of juice in um, a container, like a little thermos that you actually put your beer in on the beach. So that was for my sister, the beer container. And then the fruits went inside, like the little frozen juice packets, you know, so my mom was thrilled. I kept thinking, and I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking. And I'm doing this, thinking, 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 thinking. thinking. And I realized it was my ring. Um, So when I got down to Brazil in 2001, you know, they, uh, I've been studying Portuguese, you know, you're studying Portuguese in classes, and um, I realized when I got to my little, I was like a hotel apartment, that you know, you can't drink the tap water and you have to go out and buy your own water, and I was terrified to go and buy some water, you know, you to go down to the store, and that, that basic interaction of your first day, it's like, eu gostaria comprar água? And they're like, see, sí. And then they're blah, 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 blah. You're like, throw money on the counter and they just like sort it back to you and you run back to the apartment. I remember I, I was like, I was like in a desert, you know, I was like just parsing out my water so I wouldn't have to go through that experience again. I was like, sip, like I don't want to buy again, I don't want to buy again, you know. <laughs> I got over it. Um, fortunately, because I had some really wonderful friends, um, Freddie Abrio, um, who worked at this uh, place called and he knew that I wanted to um, to find these communities of women that make pottery. Um, when I first went down there, I was told, well, there's only one community. And I was like, alright, there's only one community. Um, and then I heard about some others um, and I was introduced to some friends and I went to um, Antonio, a little place that's close to the, the Sertan, which is kind of like the desert. You know, it's a couple hours drive outside of, um, outside of Salvador. You know, and I got to this market and I was so excited only to find out that she had just packed up and moved with her daughter to Chile, and she wasn't coming back. And I was, I was devastated. I was like, What do you, what do you mean? I, she just packed up like two months. I've been sitting in Brazil for two months trying to buy water. And, um, <laughs> and finally, I can make it. So, all right, so set back, but then I met another friend. And um, at some point during that time, I was walking in the mall because that's what you do, you know, when you're um, scared to talk. You walk around in malls, pretend you're shopping, don't buy ice cream don't talk to people. Um, But I found this place called Agasterns, and I was thinking of souvenirs to bring home for my family. You know, I was just there a month or so. And um, you know, when you're shopping for other people, you end up shopping for yourself. And this ring was sitting there. It was this lovely ring, and it just had all the symbols of the orishas, um, which is the um, Afro-Brazilian deities. They're from the Euroban religion. and that was also part of my research there. And so I just thought it was this lovely ring and it had this little chip in it. And I realized that I had enough left over because I'd gotten a film grant and I'd gotten this and I had enough that I can buy this ring for me. And I'll think about other people later. Uh, so <laughs> I got the ring. And Freddie, my friend at the Institute of My Watch goes, ah, Mimi, he calls me Mimi. Ah, I like your anel, he'll call it the anel, the ring. And he would tease me about this ring endlessly, endlessly, endlessly. So the trip ends. A year and a half, I'm back in New York, and then I go back and I happen to see Freddie. And a friend had told me that you're not supposed to wear a ring when you're a single woman because men don't know the difference between left and right. And if you have a ring, <laughs> they don't think you're married. And so I took the ring off. All right, <laughs> and I got stuck in my uh, in my jewelry box. And I saw Freddie. And the first thing Freddie he hasn't seen me in like two years. And the first thing he goes, "Oh, Mimi, cadea And I was like, "Oh, oh, oh, yeah, the ring." You know. And I realized that inadvertently, I'd bought myself a magic ring. Um, because the Fulbright experience was wonderful and I, you know, in your idealistic youth-ish, you hope that it's gonna turn into Ralph and the writers and all that, but sometimes life doesn't let that happen. Sometimes the trip ends a little sooner because you called home to say, hey mom, I'm gonna stay another six months, I gotta lead on a teaching job. And you hear the news that your grandmother's not doing well and she has surgery. So you don't change your flight, you go straight home. And you think you're gonna pick up the adventure again, but you get scared or you're just worried about losing that loved one, my grandmother. So you stay and you work and you maybe you bartend, you wait tables and you do a little bit, a little bit of that and you're not in the place where you thought you would be but then you turn your ring and suddenly you're sitting down in the middle of this rural family's living room, this family that you met driving down the BR 101 with your friend who would just stop at bus stops and say, do you know anyone that makes pottery? That's how I found everybody, <laughs> and she would say, and they would say, "Oh yeah, go here," or "No," and so we found this one community, um, and uh, you know, I, I uh, you know, so it was the first community that I actually found after the Chilean woman, and I was so excited, I had my car rented, I was driving, and they gave me a language si- assistant because remember I had the water issue. And so I had a, a language facilitator with me, but I've been practicing my Portuguese. I've been speaking Portuguese. I didn't have a lot of American friends there. And so we're driving there, we get to this group, and there's the president of the um, of the community, there's the family that makes the uh, pottery, there's the mother, the daughter, the granddaughter, and they're all sitting there and they're showing me the pots and they're waiting for me to explain my project. And So I'm sitting in the, you know, on the on the couch and and I'm so proud and I'm telling them in Portuguese explaining it's like Eu gostaria tirar as fotos. It was the early months, okay, I speak better now. <laughs> and I was using my proper Portuguese, I'd study this and all that, and they're all smiling, they're all nodding at me, and I'm all like, yay, I'm doing it, Mimi, you are doing it. You are here, you are speaking Portuguese, you've got your camera in the car, you are you are just another Zorniel Hurston, there you go. And they're all laughing, yeah. <laughs> and they're all laughing and nodding with me, and suddenly, the president of the Morador situation turns to my language facil- facilitator and goes, what is she saying?
6: <laughs> <laughs>
7: <laughs> and she explained for me and they let me take their portraits, but they actually turned out to be like lovely, wonderful friends and I would spend um, days at a time at the, with the community and they would always make like this lovely lunch or they'd send me home. Like I had this little Fiat, you know, and um, they, were, they would make the pots, the pottery, that was just like, they did it in memoriam um, it was a, just a tradition that they remembered, and they did it for all the women that did it before. And it was no longer the way they sustained their lives. So they're basically just, uh, they're, they're farmers, they're substance farmers, and they went down to market, and, uh, to marketplaces, and so with, when I would go back to Salvador, my car would literally be loaded down with with um, fresh oranges and, and green coconut water, you know, just like, just everything, like the back, it's like the front tires would kind of like be off the ground, they loaded me up so much. And, I have a magic ring, so even on the bad days when you're thinking like, "Well, what am I doing with my life?" you know, I, I turn that ring, and I can be suddenly. I remember Freddie, Freddie, who passed away, a dear, dear friend, who every day we would have lunch together, and he would just talk. He talked a mile a minute. I love Freddie, and um, he would always laugh because um, they called me um, my nickname there was uh, Quasi Bayana, so falta, so hebola. So I was the, almost the Bayana, the Brazilian woman, the Bayana woman. I just didn't walk with the like slow swagger. I walked like a New Yorker, just fast, 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 and I always arrived everywhere sweaty and out of breath. They're like, "Slow down, Minina, slow down." So that was. I want to thank Ralph for uh, reminding me that I have a magic ring, and that's kind of what the lovely thing is about souvenirs. It doesn't matter if it's a rock that you found on the beach. It. It's just like that touchstone that reminds you of what you can do, and what you have done, and what you can be proud of, and what can make you laugh.
1: Wow. All these stories are reminding me of so many things. One is that I, uh, when I was in Brazil, I tried to take samba, uh, de lessons, and my teacher said that I moved like a German. Um, <laughs> And, and she said that the Brazilian soccer players, all their moves are below the waist, and the German players like all their moves is above the waist. And it's like, yeah, you know, ancestry.com, you, you nailed it. Um, but it also reminds me of how, um, in the book, uh, scholars who study souvenirs say that, that souvenirs are actually a comfort ritual, that shopping is something you can go to a place, in a faraway place, that maybe confuses you, maybe a place where you're not really sure how to order water and are a little bit bewildered by it. And spending time in a place shopping for things that you might envision in your home back home or giving to loved ones can be a way of negotiating comfort with a faraway place. So it was funny to hear that in Jean-Marie's story. This is usually, this is a monthly Bennington reading series, but this guy is our only Bennington guy. I actually went to grad school at Bennington with him quite a long time ago, and man, it's been almost ten years since our class started. It's been nine years, good grief. Um, he owned the coolest bookstore in New Jersey from 2004 to 2012, The Rack and Tour, which is now sort of a touring drama and uh, radio stage play, uh, stage play troupe. Uh, he's a playwright. He writes uh, young adult stories. He is a professor at Rutgers. Alex Dawson, come on up. Thank you.
8: Thank you. Thanks man. Thanks for having me. So um, I'm not jet-lagged, but uh, I have a five-year-old that gets up at five o'clock, so (laughs) I am there. Um, Rolf uh, wrote me, boy, you really can't see anything. (laughs) Did everybody leave? Um, Rolf wrote me uh, a few days ago um, about um, joining the lineup. And so this isn't necessarily a souvenir. Um, I sort of interpreted the assignment as a significant object or a... Sacred artifacts, so this is certainly an object loaded with meaning and memory, and and I I think in a sense, it's a souvenir of Alabama, though I don't know why one would want one of those, but uh, uh, I grew up in Alabama and sort of ran screaming for college. Um, But, there it is. When we drove back from my mother's wake, a thousand miles with our year-old son, we listened to life on audibles the slurry recollections of Keith Richards read out loud by Johnny Depp. Zan liked the steady timber of Depp's voice and when he was cranky, it seemed to calm him. In college, I'd done the trip home in 15 hours flat, but with a kid it took longer, the full book, all 22 hours. Life will, I think, forever frame my mother's funeral. My mother had been a model, a teacher, a novelist, a tour guide, a horse and dog trainer. She spoke three languages and had her pilot's license, guided polar bear tours across Canada, Canada and flipped her Honda Big Red, a three-wheeled ATV with balloon tires when she was 55. She hadn't been a rock star, but to a large degree, that's how I remember her. She was tall and beautiful. She wore leather pants and gator boots and flowers in her hair. She liked loud music and had a horse named Mothership. She drank and smoked and traveled the world. She was married three times, once to a man old as her father, once to a man not much older than me. For Halloween, she dressed up as Wendy Williams and Nina Hagen and the mother from Tommy, all leopard print and orange beehive. She was dynamic and reckless and selfish and juvenile. She threw great parties and violent tantrums. She was larger than life and when she died, suddenly and mysteriously, the one thing I wanted was her boots. I remember her standing in the paddock. My brother was teaching a black colt named Licorice to lead and I was hanging on the fence, bare elbows hooked over the rough sawn, rails watching. She was on the other side, feet apart, fists on her hips. She was wearing tight, dark denim tucked into those red cowboy boots and a Stones concert tee, blue like her jeans, with the Hot Lips logo across the chest. From across the paddock, The red lips looked a little like the Superman symbol, and with her pants bunched into her boot shafts, she looked like Supergirl. Even though Supergirl wore a dress and not tights. The boots were made from caiman belly, and I remember how she'd sit and socked feet and clap the pointed toes like the snout of an alligator. Get in my belly, she'd say. Her voice, (laughs) octaves lower than normal, her gator voice, the same voice she used for Lyle the Crocodile. There was an alligator I remember that lived in Shep's Pond, one parcel over, and one time it ate half a bird dog. He caught it with a snatch hook and shot it with a bang stick. Mom had been a model when she was younger, briefly, but she couldn't nail the scissor cross. She was a stomper, better suited to the dog kennel on the horse ranch than the catwalk. Sometimes she liked to talk to them, like Nancy Sinatra. Are you ready, Boots? I remember Mom's first buck. Even smeared with its blood a rite of passage for newbies, mom looked lovely, forehead red as her boots, gun barrel cradled in the crook of her elbow, strong and sure, like Calamity Jane, if Calamity was anything to look at. Not like the other women, the other wives and mothers, scrawny and carry-like in their bricky stickiness, some of them rubbing their shoulders, crying at the rifle kick, at the sight of the deer blood, at the sight of the dead deer or the blood, at its hot, mucky touch on their forehead or cheek. I remember how she drank some of it, how a drop had dribbled onto her boot, running down the instep, stopping and congealing on the toe, the blood so red on her face, now almost black against the candy-colored leather. I remember her on the front porch, leaning back in white wicker, Cuban heels up on the rail, the drop black as a blister beetle still on her toe, eating sunflower seeds, her tongue turning them for salt, cracking them on her back teeth, spitting out the shells with a steady clicking rhythm like the ticking of a clock. I remember her once turning over, laughing as she stood on her hands, leaning her bright boots against the white clabbered shingles of the house. Wow, I remember saying, giggling, trying it myself, but crumpling after only seconds. Wow, is mom upside down, she'd said, falling to her feet. I remember the string of plastic pearls she wore everywhere, even hunting. She said she wore them so she'd know when she was upside down. I remember them dangling in her face when she flipped over, how she'd snapped playfully at the string catching it in her mouth, how her lipstick had gotten on the pearls, how they'd stayed red like that for weeks. Or had that been the blood? Instead of stockings, we left out our boots for Santa to fill. She did the same, not just on Christmas Eve, but her birthday and Mother's Day, too. Our cabin was small, and she didn't want us buying her anything big. If it can't fit in my boot, I don't want it, she always said. Her favorite candy was peanut M&M's, our go-to gift before we had money. I remember the yellow wrapper poking out just above the boot collar like a nursery rhyme. Red on yellow, kill a fella, she taught us. The best way to tell corals from kings. She told me that the guy who made them also made boots for Conway Twitty. Once it was Mo Bandy and once Freddie Hart. She never met a lie she didn't like. Her boots stand now next to mine to the right of the front door, as if in use, as if shut only just. The shafts are smooth, calfskin, but the gator toes are rough and rutted, and I like to run my fingers along the scoots like I did when I was a kid, gently. There's dried clay on the heel breast and on the ridge where she wore her spurs, and sometimes I worry that it'll scab off and I'll somehow lose even more of her than I already have. Thank you.
1: I actually, um, I've been to places where I've actually bought souvenirs, but nothing evokes the place quite like the boots I wore when I was there, being a boots guy, and actually my book has a lot about um, how, actually what I'm going to read later, um, talks about how certain souvenirs and certain objects evoke certain people in life. Um, Our next reader sort of brings uh, Namibia full circle. Uh, When I was driving through Namibia, uh, ostensibly doing research for my souvenir book, I was listening to podcasts which I am sort of addicted to and I was listening to this podcast uh, with Henry Rollins being interviewed by comedian Ari Shafir. As it turns out, Ari Shafir was in, K- in Cambodia at the time, reading my book Vagabonding. Um, at the same time, I appeared on his podcast last summer. He appeared on my podcast last fall. Uh, he is here tonight. He, you might know him from Comedy Central or from his Netflix stand-up specials. He's going on tour in Australia next month. So, Peggy, if you want to go back to Australia and get more jet lag, you can, you can see him there. Uh, but Ari, come on up and uh, tell us a story.
0: Thank you, everybody. Okay, first of all, I misunderstood the assignment. I thought we were supposed to sell souvenirs. So <laughs> if you guys want Empire State Building shot glasses, I have them outside for $7 each. <laughs> so I I don't know which one to tell. I like getting souvenirs when I go places, but only like something small, especially when I'm traveling like with just one backpack, because there's no room. There's no room, that's the biggest problem. There's no space. You like buy something, you're like, I gotta shove shove something off. You know, there's only so much area. So what I generally buy is little like fridge magnets because I can travel with them. Um, I'm not gonna tell one about that. I'm gonna decide, uh, I was in Northern Thailand in this uh, place called uh, The Cave Lodge, this t-shirt I'm wearing right now actually, from there, so this is my souvenir. Uh, it was cool, it was uh, this Australian guy discovered it, this piece of like land in, uh, for sure, I've turned this off, in um, Northern Thailand, like a, like three hours north of Chiang Mai, uh, where there was this cave, and he asked the locals if he could have some area, and they were like, yeah, you can't grow corn there Fucking do all you want, stupid Australian, and uh, <laughs> They gave him this land. He just started cave tourism there. And uh, it's, it's long to get there. It's far away. But it's fucking worth it. He just takes you on like explorations. He's trained locals on how to like give these like cave tours. You go for six hours in this like cave, pitch black. Um, it's rad. It's awesome. And I stay there for like three days just meeting other travelers. That's the funnest part about traveling is meeting other travelers. You try to like get into, like, locals, but it's not always possible. But other travelers you can meet all the time. And you meet really interesting people. And you also meet really garbage people, too. Uh, so this story is about the garbage person I met uh, in my entire four months there. It was this Czech model. Models are awful people. I don't know if you know any. There are a lot in New York. They're just, they're dumb, and they think they're self-important, and they're not. This one, this Czech model. First of all, everybody has different pastimes. Her pastime was selfies. Um, which I get, if you're that hot, who are you going to take a picture of? Fucking ugly ass, anyone else? No. So all she did was that. You know how someone say something to you that's so stupid you can't even look at them? She would say things like that all the time. Like Like, she would leave her passport out on her bed, and we're like, you can't do that. Like, you need your passport. She goes, Asians don't steal. None of them? There's almost two billion of them. None of them steal? She's like, I don't think so. I'm like, all right, whatever. And then, uh, One time we were like, uh, it was dark and there was a moon out and she goes, how come the moon is sometimes a C and sometimes an O? (laughs) (laughs) And it was like, I mean, I don't really know what the answer is, to be honest. (laughs) Something to do with light refraction, I'm not really sure, but I wouldn't open my mouth and say that shit in public. woman was so fucking dumb. God, and it wasn't just me. Everybody hated her. We all looked at each other like, you heard that, right? It was like this, this like, this thing that brought us together. So they had this deal at the cave lodge. If you go on three, uh, if you go on three hikes, you get a free t-shirt, uh, which is like, what, I'm not interested, because I trust I have to shuttle some other t-shirt to get it. But I was like, nah. I know, I got it. I'm telling you how it's going to go. <laughs> I'll get there. But you have one. I have a whole new story already. I understand. <laughs> So I did two, and I was like, I'm out of here. And then I was like, you know what? There's this one other like cave exploration, this one cave that the owner John was like, you should really do it. I'm not gonna be going. My my guide will will take you guys there. And I was like, I don't know, maybe. And he was like, you get the free T-shirt. I'm like, John, I'm not interested in the free T-shirt, man. That's not why I'm here. Um, But these other people I met, they were from like Montana or something. Like we're all going. They were all cross country runners. And I was like, all right, you guys are cool. I'll go with you. And the Czech model was like, if you guys are going, I'll go too. I'm like, goddamn fucking fuck. Alright, so, it was about an hour drive, the guy took us there, and there was about an hour hike to get to this cave, and then we go, and it's six or seven hours in that thing, and every time he stops, there's a beautiful, like, stalactite, this guy had this, like, light fixture that he could, like, show these stalactites and stalagmites, and we take a quick picture, and then we move on, but the fucking model took, like, 40 pictures, she would, like, go in different poses, it slowed us down, it was, honestly, if you met her, you'd understand more, but, uh... <laughs> Whatever. We got through it. It was fine. We got through it. On the way out, uh, the guide was like, hey, just so you might, might know, there might be gibbons here. And we're like, what are gibbons? Like, they're these monkeys. This is broken English. But uh, he went to his back of his truck, and he pulled out this, like, huck of, like, bananas, like a branch with, like, 50 bananas all around it. And he gave us each, like, five or six bananas. And he was like, he let out a gibbon call. It was like, whoa. I don't know. That was not at all close. But, like... <laughs> There might still be gibbons here, right, based on how shitty that call was. Like, uh... So he did that and a gibbon came out of the trees and he fucking threw this banana at him and this gibbon took it and then just like, he like popped it out of his mouth, in, like out of the thing, into his mouth and threw the banana peel. They don't care about their environment at all, these <laughs> gibbons. And then, uh, and then he just goes running back into the woods and the, the guide was like, more will come. I guess the one gibbon will be like, hey, there's white people giving out bananas out there. <laughs> I should get out and get some fucking free bananas. And so, uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so they came, they all came, and they're all in the trees, and it was awesome. You just take your a, a banana, and he was very clear. He's like, do not get too close. These are wild animals. They're about that high and uh, tall is the answer. And, uh, and uh, you just throw it to them. They catch it with either their hand or their foot, and they just pop it in their mouth. Again, littering like crazy. They're like New Yorkers. And. Um, It was pretty rad and the guide was like over there and then I just hear him go, let go please. And he was looking past me, like over this direction and it was the Czech model he was looking at. And he was like, you need to let go right now. And she was wrestling with a banana, with one of those gibbons, like not letting it go. (laughs) Just holding it and not allowing the gibbon to take the fucking banana. And he's like getting more and more perturbed. He's like, you need to let go right now please. You need to let go right now please. And she just wasn't letting it go. And uh, she, you know, she was doing, she was getting a selfie with the fucking gibbon. She was trying to like, like hold it in so she could get it and put like monkey ears on him or something. We're like Fucking idiot, it's already, whatever. The guy was getting more and more upset. He's like, you need to let go right now. Let go of the, let go of the man right now. By the way, the gibbon is being very cool about it. Like he's being chill, he's just with his hand, hand, he's like trying to grab it with his foot, he's trying to push her hand away. Like, are you fucking crazy? I'll eat your eyeballs, what is wrong with you? He was just kind of like interested, but like weirded out at the same time. And then uh, eventually some other Gibbon comes out of the trees and just sees the scene, which is his bud uh, fighting over food with a Czech model. And they don't have the same beauty standards we have, so it was no brainer who he's gonna defend. And he just comes running down and then jumps on this model's like shoulder and just like, ah, and just fucking like, bites. Yeah, it got cool. And uh, like, I don't like to throw around the word hero much, but okay, here's what I did. I'm just letting you know. So I was like mid-throw when all this was happening, and then he jumped on her, and I went like this. I, re- I mean, I rushed into reaction. I was just like, I mean, not a, not a part of me even thought to do anything. It was just like, wow, look at this. Uh, the tour guide, uh, he took a banana and he threw it at the gibbon. It hit him in the chest, which he didn't like. And he jumped at the tour guide and tried to slash at him and he blocked it and threw him off and threw him like three bananas. And that gibbon was like, yeah, motherfucker, you know what's up. And he like, he, like went into the woods. Uh, the Czech model let go of that banana and that gibbon went away. And then we all just stared at the Czech model. Just looking at her, and she was like, "She goes, she goes. What? <laughs> like, what, what do you think? What? Why, why do you think we're looking at you now when we weren't looking at you thirty seconds earlier? Can Can you think of anything that happened over the last minute or so that would make us look at you? The <laughs> fucking give an attack! You remember give an attack!" And we're like, you gotta go to the hospital. And she was like, no, I do not have to go to the hospital. Like, we're like, what are you basing that information on? <laughs> you're gonna Have to go to the hospital for sure. You gotta go to the hospital. And she's like, guys, you're starting to worry me. I'm like, we should worry you. You just got attacked by a gibbon. We're not the ones who should worry you. Uh, mostly the gibbon reaction is what should worry you. And uh, she was like, what happens if I don't go to the hospital? We're like, you'll get rabies. And she's like, and then what? I'm like, and then I don't know. You'll get, you'll bite us and we'll get rabies. I don't know how rabies works. Maybe you'll die. That'd be the best case scenario. But like. You gotta go to the hospital. <laughs> by the way, this uh, this hostel we're staying at, this cave lodge, it was, like, remote. So there was only, like, this, there's no place to eat around there. They had dinner till 8 o'clock, just so you know. Uh, and that was it. If you don't get back by 8, you're going hungry. You get the nuts you have in your bag, and that's it. So uh, we're like, you got to the hospital. And she's like, it didn't break the skin. Fucking blood gushing down her head.
6: <laughs>
0: yeah. And, uh... <laughs> So we're driving back and then the the guide is like, uh, we can stop at, we're near a hospital. And so he does, he stops near a hospital. He goes, about a mile up this road, there's a hospital. He wrote down like, what happened? He goes, show that to the the doctor. And he'll give you, I don't know, a thousand shots or something. (laughs) And she gets out of the back of the truck and she like looks back at us with just like a wounded lost look in her eyes. Just like, remember the first time you got your license and you got into an accident? And you're like, I don't know how to do this remember like you rear in somebody lightly and whoever you hit they're like they're like I need your license and registration and you're like where would that be <laughs> and it's not enough that you hit them you still gotta like have them walk you through it like can you help me with this <laughs> you could tell those kids anything by the way you could be like I get your car now you know that right <laughs> and I'm like, well I like that you hit me so I get your car that's how it works and they'd be like yeah I guess so yeah And anyway, she had that look in her eyes and she was like Will any, of you, will any of you come to the hospital with me? And we're all looked at each other. We're like, we're not, we're not alone thinking, no way, right? Yeah, okay, we're all, and we're like, no, we will not be coming to the hospital with you. And she was like, why? We're like, because dinner only goes till eight and it's 7.15 right now and we're fucking hungry. And then she was like, but what will I eat? And we're like, you still got four bananas left. I don't know what to tell you. And then as soon as I got back, John, that guy, was like, do you want one of those t-shirts? I'm like, yeah, motherfucker, I earned it. Give me a fucking t-shirt. So that's what I have here. Thank you very much, everybody.
1: Awesome. Wow. I didn't go to that part of Thailand. Uh, But now I will read an excerpt. It doesn't involve Czech models, I'm sorry. It involves my Aunt Linda, but she was not a Czech model. I learned a curious lesson about the subjectivity of souvenirs at age 15, not long after I came across the remnants of a plane crash while hiking through the front range of the Colorado Rockies. The wreckage, which was strewn along the slopes of a ridge near Orm's Peak, belonged to a B-24 bomber that had gone down in stormy weather the night of April 26, 1944, killing its seven-man crew. When I first saw the twisted bits of wing and fuselage half buried amid chunks of granite on the mountainside, I was taken by the unadorned gravitas of the spectacle. I remember sifting through smaller bits of debris gripped with naive jitters at the prospect of finding human remains. To my relief and mild disappointment, I didn't find any bleached bones or yellowed teeth, though I did find a small rusted aviation fuse box, which I scavenged as a souvenir to show to friends when I went back home to Kansas. To my chagrin, none of my Kansas friends took much interest in the old fuse box. Whereas I could look at it and recall the solemn spectacle of a shattered World War II-era bomber littering a mountain slope, my friends saw little more than a corroded piece of metal about half the size of a cigarette pack. To me, it evoked an aura of young men, not much older than we were, plunging to their deaths on a lonely mountain ridge. To my friends, it looked like a rusty bit of junk that could have once belonged to anything. Part of the problem here was that my friends knew that I hadn't just randomly stumbled across a plane crash in the Colorado Rockies. I had been hiking there, along with some other teenage boys and a college-age trail guide as part of a church camp I attended each summer. If there had been any uncertainty or tension during the experience, it had come from the fact that my camp counselor had implored us not to take souvenirs from the crash site. I had secretly pocketed this fuse box in the hopes of sharing the grim emotional energy of the site only to discover that it didn't mean much away from the rest of the wreckage. This disconnect, and that is the inability of most travel objects to evoke meaning to people who weren't there, is why souvenirs inevitably carry a personal resonance that can't be replicated at a broader social level. In a sense, the souvenirs I've collected at various stages of my life have constituted a haphazard museum of my own way of looking at, being in, and making sense of the world. Unlike a more formal museum, nothing is ever labeled, and I don't have a system that dictates which items will be displayed, or where, or for how long. With the exceptions of some masks I bought during my early years of living and traveling in Asia, none of my travel mementos have been collected in a systematic way. They have, rather, been acquired in spontaneous moments of inspiration for reasons I sometimes have trouble describing. To accumulate souvenirs in a more methodical way would, for me, be at odds with the joy of collecting them on impulse." I suspect that my way of collecting souvenirs is normal. A popular assumption about travel mementos is that they are a form of conspicuous consumption. This notion, that souvenirs are somehow status objects aimed at other people, might hold true for certain meticulous self-conscious nouveau riche travelers, but I'd reckon most people collect their most meaningful souvenirs in ways that are surprising even to themselves. We might collect and curate our books, vinyl records, or antiques in ways that easily make sense to other people, but our most personal travel souvenirs have a way of defying easy classification. A short section of my wall in my living room, for instance, features a wooden boomerang and three aboriginal dot paintings I purchased in and around Alice Springs in 2005. Look closely and you'll see that the dot paintings are quite basic, with no individual flourishes on the part of the artist. The boomerang, which I now realize was probably made in China, is non-functional and features machine-stenciled kangaroos. They are the very items a person might buy after a few minutes in any Alice Springs gift shop. To all appearances, they say simply, I went to Central Australia. In truth, these souvenirs were never really about the part of the world where I bought them. Earlier that year, in the spring of 2005, I had come to own a home in Kansas, the first house I could really call my own. I'd already hung up the Asian masks I'd collected in my early days of world travel and I wanted to add a new cultural texture as I remodeled my house. That I bought aboriginal dot paintings in Australia was thus connected to the simple novelty of possessing a wall where they could hang. My boomerang dot paintings might evoke a vague sense for Australia when I look at them, but more intuitively they remind me of the understated pride I felt when I would come to own a home of my own. Walk through my house now and you'll see all manner of souvenir displays. Little museums of the personal that evoke private associations I could never communicate to people who haven't directly shared my life experiences. One travel memento I have on display is a 1980s topographical map depicting a section of central Colorado. It hangs innocuously alongside other maps in the mudroom at the back of my house. And in a certain sense, it's interesting for the bygone elegance of its artistry and the secret language of its logic the way its curved lines evoke abstractions that can be made concrete only on backcountry trails with the help of another bygone technology, the compass. When I look at this map, I don't just think of orienteering or that small section of Colorado. Instead I think of the wreckage of that B-24 bomber near Orm's Peak and how I felt when I first saw it at age 15. As it happened, the way my friends reacted to the rusty aviation fuse box planted a seed of regret that took root and blossomed in the years that followed. For some reason, I couldn't look at the fuse box without the sense that I had somehow desecrated the scene of the crash by taking home a part of it. In the months after I first brought it home to Kansas, I removed it from the collection of souvenirs I kept in my bedroom and put it into a box in the closet. But it didn't feel right keeping it there either, and four years after plucking the plane crash remnant from a distant mountainside, I took it back to Colorado. By that point, I was now a counselor at the same church camp. It was now my job to lead teenagers through the Colorado wilderness and, when the occasion was appropriate, to show them the site of the plane crash. One August afternoon in 1990, when I was doing just that, I unceremoniously placed the fuse box back amid the wreckage. As a souvenir, it hadn't just failed to inspire the imaginations of my friends, it had left me feeling unsettled by the notion that it didn't really belong to me. Now, when I want to remind myself of the person I was the summer of my fifteenth year, I can simply walk out to the map in my mudroom, trace my fingers along its curved lines, and on my own private terms, dream myself back into the moment that first made that place meaningful to me. Many months ago, when I first started to research this book, my father's older sister Linda Ireland died at age 83. Aunt Linda was a smart, funny, feisty woman, a voracious reader who couldn't be bothered with a euphemism when a swear word would do. When I was seven years old, she, along with Dale, her second husband, took me to my first Kansas City Royals baseball game. And when I was 13, she encouraged my nascent interest in writing by slipping me Stephen King books. She and I faithfully swapped handwritten letters back in the days before email, a correspondence that stretched from Kansas to Oregon to Asia as I grew into adulthood. A few weeks after her death, her son invited me to his house to go through a few boxes of my aunt's belongings and keep whatever interested me. By this point, most all of Linda's possessions had been sold off or handed down to her children and grandchildren. What was left over in the boxes were items without much practical utility or resale value, mainly photo albums, scrapbooks, and a handful of souvenirs that her immediate family had not been interested in keeping. Looking at those items, I was struck by how much of what we collect in life ultimately becomes depleted of meaning. Without any sense for the memories or the desires that led Linda to save those keepsakes, they felt like a sorrowful menagerie of lost objects. I ended up taking a small alabaster elephant, which I now keep, perched on a coffee table in my living room. Like all the souvenirs I keep in my house, that alabaster elephant has come to take on multiple meanings. It is at once a reminder of my Aunt Linda, a narrative cipher, and a memento mori a reminder that the things we own, like life itself, can only be appreciated in real time on ephemeral terms. I see that carved elephant as I might see a fistful of dirt from a chapel floor in Jerusalem, as an object that once gave concrete meaning to experience, only to once again and inevitably be rendered abstract by time. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about all the performers from this episode and the travel stories they shared at my live event can be found at the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Music is by Cedar Van Tassel. Jan Futterman assisted with audio at the event in New York. And as usual, he does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.